say one time that the energy, the spiritual power that we gener- generate and um, collect, you might say, when we come together and sit is even stronger than what you feel in the forest with the great trees. Human beings have this ability to be these nodes of collection of that spiritual energy amplifiers and um, the deeper we practice the more um, of that we can experience and share so the, the Buddha as you well know dedicated most of his life to teaching about the way out of suffering. And he surrounded or built that that teaching around the Four Noble Truths. What he what what he realized the night of his enlightenment. And putting the focus on suffering, because that was what, and is what we all want to find our way through. One of the, one of the useful things about using suffering as a focus is it's so readily available. And we all know that experience. And. In the Four Noble Truths, as you know, the Buddha talked about the cause of suffering and the cessation of suffering and the path leading the cultivation that carries us out of suffering. And the um, more detailed description of all of this is found in the chain of dependent origination. How many of you are familiar with the 12 link chain version of dependent origination? Okay. So this is a deep teaching and my approach to it is to try my best to understand what it means, but more important than that, to practice so that I can realize it. It's, it's, it's not just an intellectual pursuit, of course. 
And when we realize things, they often don't sound like or feel like what's said in the books. So the encouragement for everyone uh, is to really apply these teachings to the best of our ability and experience them for ourselves. And we're going to really try to do some of that this weekend. And the focus, instead of um, going too deeply into the whole framework of dependent origination, I want to focus on the basic concept and how we can use it for liberation, the way that we can break the cycle of the round of rebirth. So when the Buddha taught this, he was really talking about, I believe, as a, or what, what am I called now, um, an orthodox Buddhist. <laughs> um, you know, really drawing upon the Pali Canon as, as the, the source of the teachings and that accepting the fact, the, accepting as fact that the Buddha was talking about actual rebirth from lifetime to lifetime. And it's also the case that there are teachers who've identified rightly that we can apply these teachings in this very lifetime and see how we go through the cycles of suffering and change and work with the mind to develop the ability to shift that and um, break the cycle of repeated suffering. <clears throat> so when I talk about rebirth, hold it in whatever way that you can and keeps your heart open. So the chain, I'm going to go briefly through the, um, the 12 link model and then talk about how we can find liberation. So the, the most common form of dependent origination starts with ignorance. And this is ignorance of the Four Noble Truths, ignorance of the, the, the Dharma and its inherent framework that says there are causes and conditions for whatever comes about. So if there's suffering, there's a cause for it. And this ignorance keeps us um, striving to gain things that really won't make us happy. Because we don't really recognize what the cause of happiness is, and we don't really recognize what the cause of suffering is, and how to abandon that cause of suffering, and how to cultivate the causes of happiness. So this, is, this whole instruction is intended to help us see this. 
So this ignorance, this is kind of our normal way of, of being in the world, um, the uninstructed worldling is ignorant of the Four Noble Truths or this way that the Dhamma operates. And because of that, continues to do things that bring about um, suffering in their life. These are actions that we take. Some of them are wholesome. They, they bring about good results. Some of them are unwholesome, bringing about results that are painful. And... Um, but they're, they're actions that we choose. They're volitional. And this collection of things that actually turns out to be our karma, karma, is what's known in Pali as sankara. This is the material, you might say, that's not at rest, that keeps... Um, moving in a way that then evokes consciousness and what's called name and form, body and mind, to come to operate on it. So one way I look at this is this is all of our unfinished business. That's what gets reborn. Um, unfinished business, unresolved movement of, in the mind, in the heart in the energy. So when the consciousness arises to operate on or be operated on by this past karma, at the same time as a co-condition comes the body and mind. They operate together. And once you have a body, then the six sense bases, the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, body and mind, come into being. And it makes it possible for us to see and hear and taste and touch and smell and feel and think. And this contact with the world, with experience, brings up feeling. Like right now, there's some kind of feeling that comes up just by listening to this. You might be bored, you might be intrigued, you might be whatever, but there's feeling there. As human beings, when we and, and beings of any kind, really, we have a very strong tendency to act upon feeling. We want to get away from it if it's uncomfortable. We want to keep it going if it's pleasurable. This gets us into all kinds of trouble. And when we want something, we want to hold on to it, we start to develop craving for it. So,
today I had at lunchtime this lovely bunch of grapes and they were very, very good. And it's a very simple example and you've probably heard it many times for some of you, but just noticing that reaching to for the next one that's almost automatic. It's like, oh, I want more of that sweet taste. Or I want more of that praise that someone gave me. Or I want more of that stock market dividend thing, whatever that is, I don't <laughs> you know. And then this develops into the desire to hold on to what we have, cling. So craving is about what we don't really have yet. We're reaching for something, grasping. Clinging is about holding on tightly to what we have. And it's always got suffering involved in it. And then there's this idea of becoming, which, you know, the best example, the best way to think of it is that's when clinging becomes a project. It's a thing, you know. It's probably not going to happen over eating grapes. But it can happen over all kinds of other things. Um, I could cling to being a teacher. And I could, I could become, if I become the teacher, I'll suffer. If I just allow myself to be the, the conduit through which the Dhamma comes, then it's just a gift. It doesn't have that stickiness with it. I don't have to prove anything. And you can apply that to anything you do in your life. Can it just be given totally freely? Can it be accepted, whether it's praise or whatever, praise, blame, whatever? How well can we just take it in without it becoming a project? Once there's this becoming, there's birth. There's an actual physical birth when we're talking about being reborn. And once you're born into a life, there's no way out of aging and death. And the sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, they come along with that unless we wake up. So, during this weekend, I'm going to look at two points in that whole series that are the ones where we can gain the most leverage being able to break out of that cycle. And the kind of easier one, I think, of those two 
in that chain of 12 is at the feeling stage. <coughs> because even if we get a very strong feeling about something, and it, you know, maybe it's anger or fear or sometimes love, we can be motivated to take action, and sometimes we take action very quickly, saying something sharp or um, following some desire that we shouldn't follow. But we also have the opportunity right there where the feeling happens to make a different choice. So we'll talk more about that and look more at like, how do I stay with this feeling of discomfort? It's usually the first sort of, um, probably the, the part that has the most mileage in it is if we work with those unpleasant feelings. The strong ones, the, the more mild ones, and then later working with the pleasant ones, and then finally the neutral ones. Ways of being able to make the, the choices to respond, to act or not act based on precepts, dhamma, you know, wisdom. And how beneficial it is, how much we can um, grow and develop and, and become stable and secure by cultivating the ability to hold those feelings from a, in a place from mindfulness and clear comprehension rather than just acting. Hold them and realize that we don't have to follow them. It's okay. We can, we can out, sort of outrun them or outweight them. Okay, so that's one place where we can really make a shift and start to see some real changes in our life. And I'll um, share stories with you about that from my own life. Do you want one right now? <coughs> okay. I hope this isn't going to sound too silly, but this is when I, before I was a nun, um, I was married, and um, I was using this technique of working with feeling, and I had decided that I was going to work with whatever triggered me in, you know, some kind of whatever feeling was arising. If I was triggered, um, upset, I would work with whatever that feeling was and not react. And I did it by journaling and, and answering a series of questions and being present with that feel, felt experience in my body. <coughs> so one day I came into the laundry area of my house and my wet clothes had been taken out and put on top of the dryer and I was angry. And you might say, really? <laughs> but there was something there that that just lit something in me. And I wasn't quite sure what, 
it was. But instead of like storming upstairs and yelling at my husband, or even complaining, I just sat down on the steps and I started to do this process of being present with this feeling inside and digging into where that was coming from. And one of the questions that I would ask myself in this process is, where did I first feel this feeling? What's the earliest recollection of this feeling? And it, and of course now, this, this is done in an altered state. You're, you're, you're in a meditation, actually, with the being present with your physical system. And the answers that come up to whatever question you pose in the mind are coming from an intuitive place. And this is, you know, like, here's an example of this sankara, this karma from, you know, that's, that's hanging around in the far reaches of the mind and causing some kind of trouble. And what, what appeared was a memory of being a child and being scolded for getting dirty, getting my clothes dirty. Now, the adult me knows that my mother probably didn't mean for that reaction to come up in this like four-year-old or whatever I was. But that was still hanging around and triggering something like not wanting the clean laundry on top of the dirty dryer. I hope this is making sense. (laughs) (laughs) And so I I was, in being present with what I was feeling, I was was crying, I was really feeling it, but I also had the, you know, the mindfulness was intact, watching. So I knew what I was experiencing. And I wasn't... A wash it out, overwhelmed by it. So I hope that that difference is important. And then my husband came downstairs and he's like, "What's wrong?" <laughs> and it was just a very sweet moment where it's like, mm-hmm. "Well, the clothes were on top of the truck." <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry, but I wiped it off before. <laughs> so sweet. And I know this is, this might sound like a really silly example, but for me it was important because I went through a process that I knew I could repeat. And and I knew that it, the whole experience could have gone another way. And my feeling inside when my husband talked to me was, um, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what, it doesn't matter if you wiped off the dryer. It doesn't matter if the clothes are dirty. It doesn't matter. It's like what was happening was this, this thing inside the pattern of my mind shifted. <coughs> it shifted. And it's tied to a lot more than that silly example. Because when you do this kind of work and you keep going at it and you dig deeper and deeper into it, 
you find out that what might have looked like many issues really resolves down to maybe one, one, one kind of misunderstanding in the mind. The other place in the chain of dependent origination that we'll explore this weekend, or the second place, is where ignorance, conditions sankara, and working with the sankara, you break the connection between the sankara and that arising of consciousness and mentality and materiality. I'm not going to go into detail on this one right now, but we'll talk about it later. Because here you're looking, you're working directly with the patterns of our habits and our our mental um, tendencies, that unfinished business, and really finding out where the misunderstandings are. Before we go into the the Bhikkhu Bodhi calls the hidden vortex of the consciousness and mentality and materiality arising. The third thing that I want to focus on and probably give the most attention to is a different kind of chain of dependent origination called the transcendent chain. And it it starts where the other chain leaves off. So instead of this last um, last link being death and sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, the Buddha in this version just calls that suffering. And then he takes a new direction. From this suffering, he goes to faith. So there are kind of two ways we can go on suffering. We can, so they, so I've been told, and this is in the canon also, we can, we can continue with it. We experience suffering and we do more things and make more suffering and we keep going in this round. Or we can seek a way out. And when we make that step, instead of going from death to ignorance again, we go from death to faith, we start on a new track. It's finding the way, it's taking the first step towards awakening. And this is a significant shift It's important, especially in our culture, um, to really talk about what faith means here and how it arises. And I think there are many people who really appreciate the, the fact that Buddhism doesn't require blind acceptance of anything. So. In this case, faith starts with um, a provisional openness, 
an openness to what the Buddha discovered and what he taught. Because first, in order to, for faith to arise, first you have to have that understanding of suffering, and the experience of suffering, and then you have to have the, the message, the teacher, the way out to freedom being shown to us, that, that being proclaimed, and we see that there's actually a way out. And that's when faith starts to arise. So faith in the teacher, faith in the teaching, and faith in the teacher's disciples. And all of that in Buddhism means to get tested. And you, you, you just continually look, okay, do I trust this? Do I trust what the Buddha said? Do I trust the way the Buddha lived? Do I trust the way his awakened disciples conduct themselves? And you just, and you keep laying in kind of brick by brick the foundation of faith. Once we get the spark of there really is this way out, this faith begins to get established, we feel joy. There's a joy in that. It's like, wow, this really is possible. There's a relief. Um, a falling away of stress. And this, this joy then increases into um, a more intense experience that in Pali is called PT and usually translated as rapture. And then a calming of that intensity. The next level is tranquility, which moves into sukha or happiness. And this conditions stillness of the mind concentration, samadhi. And then at this point, there's another shift. You're going through these layers of joy, bliss, happiness. And then at some point in this, there arises the knowledge of the way things really are. Seeing the way things really are. Some glimpse of that. Seeing that impermanence or suffering or non-self. And instead of that bringing despair, it brings relief. And a letting go 
first disenchantment and then dispassion with that object that before we would be clinging to. Now one of the things that's really important to know is that when this happens, there's also joy. It's not a, it's not a, I want to say, um, resignation. It's, it's not a sense of loss. It's a sense of, wow. <coughs> I didn't know before. And this way of seeing, seeing the way things actually are, brings greater and greater happiness, greater and greater peace, and greater and greater compassion. And this, this process then comes to its fullness in complete freedom and release. And when, when people get to that point, the, the experience of becoming an arahant is the full expression of it. There's no more greed, hatred, or delusion then everything that they give is completely free. Um, Like the Buddha's teaching for those 45 years. And we can experience this in, in small doses, bit by bit, glimpses, that can bring incredible joy And then the final chain link here is the the knowledge and vision. The knowledge that this this release has happened. The taints are gone. The cankers are gone. There's nothing holding you back anymore. I think you may have experiences already that fit different pieces of this chain. And it's useful to explore where those, um, what those are and what they really mean. Because it's like whenever we can see some little, little experience of it, that we can develop and, and grow with that. But the most important thing about all of this is, what does this mean to us now? What can we do with it? How can I be present with the experience I'm having today?
way that brings more freedom? Can I see this stepwise progression and make that real in my life? And my experience is yes. And there are practices that we can pick up, that we can make into habits, where we can really start to start to see through the confusion that brings up so much suffering and allows it to really keep repeating in us. We have some time. I'd like to see if you have any questions. Yes. So you said that you, in your story, that you were journaling and also asking yourself some, a series of questions. I wonder what those questions were. Well, um, there are a few different approaches that help you work with what you're experiencing in your body. So the questions started out with, you know, like, where do I feel this in my body? Um, I don't know if you've heard of focusing or um, feeding your demons practice, but these are all kind of similar in some ways, ways of identifying, okay, where do I feel this? What does it feel like? What color is it? If it had a color, um, what's its texture? What's its shape? How is it changing now that I'm watching it? But the, the interesting part of all that is this is the process of stepping back from being engrossed in it, pulled in by it. And this is a practice that allows us to be able to have that grounded mindfulness regardless of what feeling arises. So you do it with these simple, small things or big things, whatever's coming up, and, and to not be afraid of doing it with any size experience. So in the practice I was using at that time, I would just actually had a sheet with my questions on it. And I would sit down and just and just write out first a phrase that described the trigger. And, and you find out pretty quickly that the triggering experience, even presidential elections, it doesn't matter. It's like, that's not the point. Because once there's freedom in the mind, then there is a stability regardless of what's happening. And so the phrase of the trigger and then this exploration of what's happening in the body and observing that. And then I also used questions like, when did I first feel this? Um, 
there, there would be other questions. It depends on how the experience was going. If the experience, as I was watching it, would start to kind of fade. You know, sometimes when you watch things, it kind of dissipate. There's always change happening. You can explore the impermanent nature of this thing. Um, I might ask, well, what if, and I'd bring up some scenario that would intensify the feeling so that I could explore it further. I don't know how to give one for that example, but sometimes, you know, like, say you feel insulted by someone and you're working with the feeling that arose from that. And then you might think, well, what if, what if I was treated like this, like, 14 times this morning? You know, like, how would that feel? And just kind of going more into base, you know, taking into account, like, how much can I take of this? How, you know, how, how stable do I feel at the moment? And then, you know, digging deeper into it and staying with it. And then what, what you're looking for is what is the sort of seed in the back of my mind that's actually causing me to create suffering around this? Because it, it's very clear from the Buddha's teachings that it's not the object and it's not the experience that's the problem. It's, it's the misunderstanding inside. So would this be an example? Like uh, I was uh, upset about somebody not doing something they said they were going to do and you know, it kind of was exploring that feeling a little bit, not nearly as, as uh, specifically as you said, but it kind of made me realize that I was feeling like I was putting a lot out in other places in my life too, and maybe not getting cared for enough. And so it made me realize that that was kind of coloring how I saw this specific mm -hmm. experience. That's, that's a, a good way to recognize, like, what is the whole context? What are the contributing factors? You know, like, if you look at the way the Buddha discovered the chain of dependent origination, what's the cause? What's the cause of this? What are the collection of causes? And then you can take it back another layer. Like, why do I need someone to do what they say they're going to do? Now, what happens if nobody says what, does what they say they're going to do for the next week <coughs> with me? What am I going to be like? You know, it's like eventually we're independent, and and it's and and we're not withdrawn. We're engaged, but we just don't have as many sore spots anymore. faith tonight, and I've had this nagging question in the past several months. Um, I, uh, I think I came to Buddhism, I was one of those people that you were talking about that was attracted to it because I wasn't asked to take any more faith. And the sort of faith that I had developed over the years was based on taking and teaching and trying it and seeing its results. And, um, 
one of a teacher that I respect through a book um, uh, in the Thai forest tradition um, challenged through this book challenges us to take on as you know at least provisionally both mm -hmm. the uh, concept of rebirth but also um, fully awakened Buddha um, and the disciples who became Buddha. Um, and both of those are difficult for me, but the one that's been nagging at me is the fully awakened Buddha and the disciples who became fully awakened um, liberated. And that's difficult because I, I, I look around then and I want to see some. Where are they? <laughs> today. Um, and I don't, I don't see that. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can feel bad bringing it up here, but it's been No, that's a very good question, and it's a it's it's something that that people struggle with. Um, I was fortunate in that I came to Buddhism through um, spending time in monasteries in Thailand in the Thai forest tradition, and it was around people who were awake, who were arahants. And sometimes on a on a mundane level, they're not very attractive or even um, inspiring sometimes. But on the level of consciousness, all kinds of interesting things happen. And then you know. And so, it's important to, to find out how to know. And um, you can know without going to Thailand. But it takes a deep investigation in the heart and an openness to that being true. And so it's like if you trust what the Buddha taught in other ways, you know, that there are really results of our good and bad actions, that um, it really is possible to use mindfulness to bring uh, a kind of... Um, stability to the heart, you know, whatever it is, wherever we've gained um, in our own, in our life based on following the Buddhist teachings, then open the mind to what, what else the Buddha said and really start looking for the evidence, even if it's just little glimpses without having to see the, the full-blown package right there in front of you right away. Because if we don't believe or understand or somehow get that the Buddha woke up, what are we practicing for? <coughs> and it's definitely not just a pleasant abiding here and now. And it's not just greater self-control or, you know, a kind of a 
insulation around our nerve endings so that we can take more. And maybe you should go to Thailand. <laughs> As a, a laywoman, what brought me to Thailand is that my son ordained as a monk and he was 24. And I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the kind of mother as you just can't go far enough away that I'm not going to track you down and make sure you're healthy and happy and <laughs> hanging out with good people. So I went to Thailand and I stayed the first time for a month. And then I came back every year and, and maybe sometimes twice a year and spent time in the monasteries. And because my son was a monk, he could take me to visit these ajans and learn from them. And when, one year I arrived, and, and this was at Wat Pananachat, which is the Ajahn Chah's international monastery in Thailand. And the monks were really busy. They were just like, there was the whole monastery was a buzz. And I asked my son, what's up? You know, this is not usually how it feels. And he said, well, Ajahn Tui is coming. He's an arahant. He's, I mean, monks do talk like this, by the way. Um, <laughs> lay people do too, but it's kind of like I have a trust that this monk probably had a lot of... Um, development. And he said, Ajahn Tui is coming, and um, what happens when, when a visitor like that comes to the monastery is everybody in the monastery gathers, or gathers, and they usually give a Dhamma talk. I mean, I so admire the teachers who they walk in the door and they speak the Dhamma. That's what you get. <laughs> And that happens a lot. Um, and I had brought, I, I had learned over over time and experience to bring gifts for the monks. And the gifts that are really, you know, like at that time, it was really cool to have an LED flashlight because that was all new. And mm -hmm. if you're a forest monk, having an LED flashlight is really a good thing. <laughs> There's no electricity, you know, in, in some of the monasteries and anyhow. Mm -hmm. So my son um, said, give this flashlight to Ajahn Tui, but don't give it to someone else. Give it to him with your own hands. Now, this is all part of how spiritual energy works. What we give and how we give it and where our mind is and how the connection we make, like, you know, generosity, putting food into the bowls of monastics. I mean, it's not just putting food in somebody's bowl. Anyway, uh, we all gathered. I had my, my flashlight. I was sitting in the back. I had the, I don't know, it, I knew when, when to go up. I bowed. I offered the flashlight. They take it on the receiving cloth. Some woman. It's okay. Doesn't matter. 
Um, and he, he picked it up. It was still in its package. And he's going, really, I mean, this guy's like in his 70s. He looked like he was 20. So <laughs> very excited talking about this. And the abbot of the monastery was translating in English. And he said to me, he knows exactly what this is. And Ajahn Tui is saying, this will stay bright for 10,000 hours. Oh. <laughs> you know how those numbers are in the Pali Canon? It's like, it just means a lot. Right? <laughs> and then he said, what would really be good is if your mind stayed bright for 10,000 hours. Mm -hmm. And then he looked at me, and in English he said, do you understand? And I was just like... <laughs> <laughs> and and I and I crawled back to my spot, and then he gave a dhamma talk, and I have no idea what he said, but my whole heart area was just vibrating and open, and I went back to my my hut afterward, and I went to bed, and I had the most crazy dream, a dream, like, like this Ajahn Tui introducing me to this monk and this Mahabua, 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 just like, like neon flashing, Mahabua, and this, like, you can get enlightened, you can, you have to practice relentlessly, it was pounding, 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 and I woke up in the middle of the night. And my head was swimming. Like that is so weird. And I went back to sleep again. The same thing. Mm -hmm. I got up in the morning. There's a knock at the door. It's my son. Well, when I got up in the morning, I thought that was really weird. I am not telling anybody about this. <laughs> They're gonna think I'm crazy. So my son is at the door at 6 o'clock in the morning, just before he goes for alms round. This is very unusual. I'm on the women's side of a monastery, you know. And he said, I said, he said, I have this book that I feel like you need, you should have. And I, I open it, and it's, it's Ajamahabuha. <laughs> and, I, and I see the picture, and I know it's him. And I never heard of him before. Mm -hmm. He he's passed away uh, a while back, but Ajahn Pasano described him as the Arahant of the age. And then I did tell my son because okay, now I got to tell him. <laughs> and um, the abbot of the monastery at that time asked me to come to see him, and we talked about this, and he said, this kind of thing can keep you going for years. You need to really investigate it, take it into your meditation, learn what it means. And the truth of that, over the next maybe six months or more, um, is that down deep inside, I had this doubt that I could be enlightened. <coughs> me? It's all the crazy stuff I've done. And Ajahn Mahabhuva took that away. Or I don't know how it works exactly. <laughs> but it's also possible that it's just their, their 
intention, their commitment to give in this way of the Dhamma meets your intention to receive it in some way in consciousness, and something happens. I'm pretty convinced that sometimes they don't even know that something happened like this to you on a conscious, like, mundane level. And then that's just the beginning. <laughs> I went to Ajamahabu's monastery later. I mean, it's amazing. But what's really amazing is not what anyone else can do for you. It's what you can see for yourself. When you experience some glimpse of Nibbana, it changes you. You know that this stuff is true. There is a way out. And there's so much joy that comes with it. Everything's falling apart. Wow. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's okay. No, it's way, way more than okay. It's the truth of the way things are, and it's different from the way we see things all the time. We don't have to be unhappy about anything. And I forget that, and I have to go back and remind myself. And at any time when a realization comes that shows you the way to freedom, log how that feels in your system and remember it and go over it again and again. Don't let go of it. Don't dismiss it. Don't say, I'm not going to tell anybody. I mean, don't tell the wrong people. Tell, tell mm -hmm. someone who's going <laughs> to help you cultivate it. But um, this, is, this is accessible. And the Dhamma is right here. Uh, Ajahn, one of Ajahn Mahabhu's disciples, Ajahn Panyawadu, he was, a, he was um, from England, and he lived with Ajahn Mahabhu for something like 40 years. And he said, never think that enlightenment is far away. It's right here. It takes a shift of the mind. See, first you had to sit through all that boring stuff. <laughs> but it's, it's all part of the... the stuff that we need to take in and understand. For when somebody opens your heart like that, that process or that person, what is that called? Kindness? I don't know. <laughs> um, see, the, the Buddha did, in, in the canon there are a lot of examples of things that the Buddha did to help people wake up. So I don't know if you know that the Buddha had a half-sister named Nan, uh, uh, Sundari Nanda. 
and when his step the Buddha's stepmother when his his father died and his um, his stepmother Mahapajapati and so many of the women the Sakyan women went to uh, ask the Buddha to be ordained or went to get ordained and there were also so many of the men from the Sakyan clan that went to get ordained um, Sundari Nanda was uh, didn't really want to go to get ordained as a nun, but she wanted to be with her family. So she went. And she was very beautiful. Sundari means beautiful and young. And you know how that feels. There's an investment in being young and beautiful. And the Buddha said, I want you to really investigate your body. And he, with his psychic powers, he um, created this woman, vision of a woman in front of her who is young and beautiful. And then he made her age before her eyes. Mm -hmm. And so she said, this is all written in the, in the Tarigata, her, her experience. And she, um, she said she took that teaching and she investigated her body night and day until she woke up. And it's like, okay, so the Buddha did that. He did other things to, to help people come to awakening, but he couldn't make somebody wake up. And it's like, it's up to us. The more open and and willing and more effort that we put in, the more likely this help comes. Is there, but there's no name for like you were just ready and it just. I don't know what I could I just call it. I think it's probably word or process. I wouldn't even call it transmission. Open receptivity to that exchange. <laughs> because it doesn't happen to everybody all the time. It can, it can, the person can be there offering, but if the person's not receptive, it doesn't happen. I know there's a word for um, someone that's being generous and someone that appreciates the generosity by giving back, there's you know there's something like that. There, there's a word for that. I just wonder if there's a yeah. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Any other last questions or comments? So this weekend you're gonna show us some some different ways to investigate some of these things. Yeah, we'll practice together and see if we can dig more deeply into those three areas, feeling, working with the patterns of our mind, and this transcendent chain. Yes? What do you mean when you say, wake up? Enlightenment defined by the Buddha is a complete freedom from greed, hatred, and delusion. So those poisons or 
uh, distortions fall away entirely and they don't arise again ever. So um, there is a Pali word for those, the asavas, the outflows or the inflows. And when, when, a, when a person gets to a place where there's no greed, hatred, or delusion in us, there's nothing you want, there's nothing you want to get rid of, you can clearly see exactly the way things are, then they don't do things that cause karma anymore. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it's, 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 the, it's the whole of the, the teachings. What it takes to get to that point is first starting with virtue, precepts, restraint. And the Buddha, the Buddha in various places talked in different ways about this, that we need, we need the moral restraint, we need to work with our mind and develop our ability to be focused and still, and, and experience what comes from that. We need to develop mindfulness. We need to develop wisdom. And it's, it's real work. And when they talk about someone who's awakened, they say the work is done. That was the question before. Is it true that anybody's awake? <coughs> That's what I believe. There's a lot of suffering in the heart as we push back and say, it's not possible. Feel it. It's the suffering and the investigation of the suffering that starts to wake us up. That's, and, and when that heart softens and we drop all the pretense and we drop our criticisms and our bitterness, then we start to make some progress. I think one thing that can really help is to really ask yourself, am I suffering? Do I want to keep suffering? This attachment is suffering. Even the attachments to the things that we're all supposed to want to have in our lives, children and parents and all of it. 
the Buddha said, look at the suffering and be present with it in a way that you're not carried away by it, in a way that you can learn from it. So it doesn't matter like how many ways we, we layer the distortions. We can peel them all back by being present with that suffering, with mindfulness and clear comprehension. And we have to have a good dose of samadhi, a good dose of concentration and stillness so that that, that, that ground, that field is prepared for the seeds of awakening. Does that make sense? Yeah. Don't despair. Mm -hmm. And and keep make good friends. The ones that'll tell you, don't despair. There really is a way out of this. And we're doing it. Mm -hmm. We're going. I had a friend that sent me a card one time. I mean, the whole process of becoming a nun this in this day and age in the Theravadan tradition is 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 real what I want to say, um, fruitful <laughs> process. And the, this friend wrote to me this card, and I put it on my shrine. It's like, she said, don't let, I, don't, I can't even really tell you exactly what it said, but it was something like, don't let anything stop you. You know, we are going for enlightenment. Don't let anything stop you. It's like, yeah, so that, that first spark of how do we even know enlightenment really exists, you got to start opening your mind to that possibility. There are people who are happy. There are people who are happy. And it, and it can't get marred. Who? What are they doing? <laughs> What? If you're in denial, um, you're not going to be happy for the long term. Um, and stupidity doesn't get it either, you know, obviously. This kind of happiness isn't um, giddy, it's not. You know, you can tell when somebody's just not grounded or not, you know, facing the way things are. This comes from really knowing suffering and facing the way things are. And then when the when awakening begins, that happiness that comes, that Now, Ajahn Suchita once sometimes said it's it's like irrepressible. It's like there's a light in them that doesn't fade. And it's like all I can say is stay present with your own suffering and be kind to it and keep your heart open or open the heart that's closed. Maybe just from the place of what's it getting you to be so negative.
You ready to call it a day? Okay. Let's do that. I think I'll chant a blessing. Sister will help me. <laughs> May you have every good blessing. May all the devas protect you. By the power of all the Buddhas, may you ever be well. May you have every good blessing. May all the devas protect you. By the power of all the Dhamma, may you ever be well. May you have every good blessing. May all the devas protect you. By the power of all the Sangha, may you ever be well. Safe journey home. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate